Welcome to the Eat, Train, Prosper podcast, where we provide you sustainable training principles for strength and building muscle, effective nutrition practices for improving and maintaining a lean physique, and practical lifestyle habits for becoming a champion of your own health, both inside and out. Hosted by Aaron Straker and Brian Borstein. Welcome to Eat, Train, Prosper. I'm here with my co-host Aaron Straker. I'm Brian Borstein. And for the very first time, we have some guests in the house today. We have Abel Shabai and Dave McConey. Um, you guys want to say a quick word, introduce yourselves, tell everyone what you do? Sure. I don't know if I even knew that we were the first guests. I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're only on our fifth or sixth episode, so. All right, right, cool. All right. Well, I'll go first. Um, so I don't know how we started talking, Brian. I don't know if you DM me or I DM you or, or what happened there. Um, but I guess it's been at least a few months because I think you were getting really lean and we were talking about like the dieting process. But, uh, you know, I started my podcast probably almost two and a half years ago now, which is crazy to me because I, I still remember like thinking up the idea. Um, but basically mine is based on health and fitness um, and when I was starting it, I quickly realized how inundated the industry was with podcasts and some are, you know, not so great. Some are great. And I'm sure you guys are going to be one of the great ones, but it was, uh, it, I realized like there's so much of it. Can I do something that's a little bit different, but also I think all of us do something outside of fitness or at least outside of like podcasting for sure. And so I figured like, how can I make it beneficial without you know even if it doesn't go anywhere um and so for a lot of people who watch mine they know there's a charity aspect so for every episode i donate to a charity um and so that's been pretty rewarding too i've gotten to become aware of a lot of charities that i didn't know of um and you know have more of an outreach there so it's been awesome and uh as a i'm a dentist on the side you know that's just kind of a little side gig <laughs> I have, so hey well yeah, I've been into the online fitness world since about 2015. That, that's when I did my first uh, interview. I began as a podcaster mainly. I was doing a lot of interviews. So that's how I kind of accumulated my first, um, like my audience started growing that way. Then eventually I started doing my own videos and um, I started online coaching in 2018. So I started quite late. So these days I'm, I'm doing a lot of that. I do some group coaching now, which has been a new gig that I'm really enjoying. And a big focus of mine is sort of teaching or educating people on getting leaner and uh, maintaining that leanness in a sustainable way. I was kind of trying to find some unique angle in the whole fitness game because for a long time I felt like everything has been said already. So this uh, sustainability aspect and doing it in a way that um, doesn't take over your whole life has been a big passion of mine. And that's sort of what I bonded over with Dave as well. And I think uh, with Brian, with you, that's how some of our early conversations started as well. And Aaron, I just came across because he was kind enough to submit his uh, case study for a recent video I made on kind of realistic uh, muscular potential, even though his muscularity might not be completely realistic for everybody, but uh, he was still kind <laughs> enough to submit it. So yeah, that's, in it. that's it in a nutshell. Cool. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, the main reason that I thought it would be really cool to have these guys on is because um, kind of as Abel alluded to, you know, in the sustainable self-development side of things, um, we're all kind of plus or minus 
the genetic average when it comes to, to training. We're all natural. We don't take any drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so these guys recently, uh, Dave and Abel, have been focusing a lot on kind of what is the limit that you can achieve genetically um, for hypertrophy. And as Abel referenced, he put out this video, Muscular Potential, where Aaron and I were both subjects. And, uh, you know, Aaron and I have both been training 20 plus years. So it makes sense that if we're doing it in a, in a smart manner, maybe not 20 years, Aaron, you're giving me those eyes. <laughs> I was just calculating. No, I'm like, I'm like the well, 16, 17, 15 but, to know. 25 years. We're, we're all in, in the advanced range. So, um, if we've been doing it well, which I believe we have, we should be average or, or slightly above average to our potential. Um, and in Abel's video, he identified that uh, given the formula that he came up with, which I thought was pretty cool, um, we I was about six kilograms over average and Aaron was about eight kilograms over average, which means Aaron is more jacked than me. So I'm working on that mm-hmm. right now. But, um, but these guys have cool ideas and views on this uh, topic. And another side of it is that we have only really delved into the genetic potential, or I've only really even heard it talked about as far as it relates to hypertrophy. So I thought it would be kind of cool to initiate the discussion and kind of move into how we think strength might be correlated to hypertrophy um, as far as genetic potential goes. So if it is, if, if one is high, if someone is naturally going to be high at hypertrophy, do we then generally assume the same for the other? Um, clearly bodybuilders are not the strongest in the world and powerlifters are not the biggest, but what if we flip that and we train the powerlifter in hypertrophy and train the bodybuilder in strength? Do we think that their potential then might be again at above average for that as well? Aaron, do you want to start off and then pass the mic on? Yeah, I'll kick that off. So man, I really like this question. It's really, really interesting because they, I think if you, we try to kind of zoom out and extrapolate the majority of the people that we maybe can think of personally or, or at a, like a more famous or, or more commonly known type level, you generally find people will transition from powerlifting into hypertrophy and then they can like be pretty successful in that. So some that I can think of like um, off the top of my head are like Stan Efforting, right? He came up as like a, a powerlifter, I believe, and then and converted more recently. Um, uh, Charlie, who's always uh, hanging out with Dr. Mike, right? So Charlie was like a big time powerlifter, then converted to bodybuilding, doing like I consider pretty well in that regard. Um, and I think what's really kind of interesting there is it's I I'm sure it influences you know well, one over the other, but it's I it's really really kind of interesting because I just don't know of anyone I know who's like kind of gone like in just one route or whatever. So it's definitely uh, a very, very cool question that I'm interested to get uh, a little bit more into. Uh, Dave or Abel, do you guys want to add your thoughts? I tend to ramble. So you want to go first, Abel? (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so I, I find this to be an interesting question as well, because on the one hand, I think we have some pretty good mechanistic rationale for why that is the case that, a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle. Like it has a better force production capability. Uh, on the other hand, there is some research that is sort of contradicting that. And that is a lot of what Jeremy Lenecke is talking about. Um, I remember just recently he was, uh, was on the podcast of Dave where he was uh, describing how they did a lot of these studies where they actually observed that someone can get bigger, but not stronger and vice versa. So they were cleverly able to separate that um, 
that relationship and seeing if it's really there. And I, I actually remember there being like one loophole in what he was describing where I, where I went, okay, that kind of describes where you, why you didn't see that relationship. So maybe some of that is bogus. Um, not knocking Jeremy Lenneke, just saying that, um, you know, maybe if those studies were done better, we would actually see that relationship there as well. But I, I feel like there is just too much anecdotal support for the idea that you cannot really get bigger unless you get stronger in the process as well. And, and also, if I'm just looking at most of my clients, usually the ones that come to me and are at a fairly advanced level already, almost like all of them are very strong. Um, and, and I have a couple of those clients who have been struggling for a long time and they just didn't put on a lot of muscle despite being in the game for, you know, at least like two, three years in which you could put on some respectable size at least. And without fail, none of them are too strong. Like if you look at the EXRX uh, strength standards, like what you sh- what should you be able to achieve on the bench press and the squat, they're not even at intermediate levels usually. And when I see that, I actually have a sigh of relief because if they were already super strong but didn't get bigger, then that would be a bigger challenge. It's like, well, maybe you just don't have great genetics for getting bigger, but you already got pretty strong, so I don't know how much more potential is there. Um, I actually had a guy inquire about coaching recently who is in that category. Like, he's super, super strong. He is benching over like double body weight squats i don't know maybe close to triple body weight and he hasn't gotten that big and you know i'm still hopeful because maybe it's just the case that um he has been training very much uh in a way that specializes for strength so i think that's another caveat that i think the general adage in the fitness world these days that you know the biggest naturals are the strongest naturals usually I think that's generally true as per individual. Like if you get bigger, you will also get much stronger. And usually as you get stronger, you will get much bigger. I think that's true generally, assuming that you actually got there doing a hypertrophy specific program. So I I do think you can get a lot stronger. And I think we see that anecdotally where you really specialize for that. So you practice a lot of one RMs, maybe you're a power lifter and you got really good at the lifts themselves, the skill of lifting heavy weights, and you didn't get as big. But I think if you follow a fundamentally hypertrophy-oriented training program and you get really strong, I think you can be pretty confident that you will act also get big. So like that's, that's my first general rant. I don't know if that answered the question at all. I think um, one interesting piece about that is that the powerlifting world has weight classes, right? So I bet there's a bunch of guys that are sitting in like a 67 kg class or something like that, that have been eating specifically at maintenance or even in like a slight deficit because they have to maintain this weight class. And that if we were to then flip their training around, throw them into like 15 to 25 rep zones and load them up with like a three to 500 caloric surplus, maybe the game changes on the size that this person can create for themselves. Yeah. You want me to go? Go ahead, Dave. Go for it, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I'm trying to think of like what specific points I'd want to hit just because obviously this could be a, a whole podcast itself. Um, yeah. So like Abel said, Jeremy Lenneke was on my podcast and I asked him, I said, do you believe that somebody could do exclusively strength training and get maximally strong without growth? And do you think somebody could do exclusively like hypertrophy training and get 
max me big without getting much stronger. And then he said, no, and I'm, I'm glad because I, I definitely don't believe that, you know, one could do that. Um, one thing though, he also pointed out is that when we're talking about strength, at least in the literature, they're talking about one rep max strength. And so he was saying, well, we have people who have gotten a lot bigger and haven't gotten stronger. But to me, I mean, again, I understand you're usually talking about one rep max, but if you took your 30 rep max from hundred pounds to 130 pounds, to me, you got stronger. Your one rep max might not have gone up at all, but you still had to progress in the rep range you're training. And, and so if we're talking about strength in any rep range, I, I don't think you can get bigger without getting stronger because, I mean, that's the whole, you know, progressive overload and all that. You're still having that, I mean, unless you want to get into like infinite volume arguments. But um, so I do think there's an extremely strong correlation. Um, there is data out there now to support that once you're beyond like a certain level of like a few years of training, the correlation between strength and size is very strong. Um, and I think Greg Knuckles had put out an article showing that in like, you know, I don't remember what the uh, correlation coefficient was, but it was very high to show that correlation there. Um, obviously, there are a lot of factor factors between individuals that factor in strength differences, right? Limb length is a huge one, uh, muscle insertions, um, sympathetic activation. I mean, th there's a lot that goes into that. And so I know plenty of people who are I've always been stronger than I look. So I have like plenty of friends who look my size or bigger and we're pretty much the same strength. Or, Brian, you and I have even talked about this. I think you and I are like almost identical strength on like overhead press, pull-ups and stuff, but you are, how tall are you? A few inches shorter than me, right? Yeah, but 5'10", 5 5'9 5 and a half, something like that. Yeah, so maybe three inches shorter than me at the same weight, considerably leaner in my opinion, um, and yet we're the same strength. So you have significantly more muscle mass. Like if we did a DEXA, I'm sure it would show more actual muscle mass for you. And yet almost identical strength. And obviously there's other factors that go into that. Um, so, you know, I can touch on other factors, but to answer it shortly, I, I think there's a very <laughs> strong correlation. Um, and I think it's other than having certain emphasis, like, yeah, if, if somebody goes into like just powerlifting, you might see some big discrepancy there. Nobody really does the opposite though. Like some people do get into powerlifting for like from day one, their friends are into powerlifting, maybe their parents or powerlifters, whatever. So they have almost strictly a powerlifting career. Nobody's like, well, I just started doing 30 reps and I do that for 10 years, you know? So we don't really know what that would look like. Yeah. Yeah. That was very, very interesting. It's a good point. I like the the idea of increasing strength at higher rep ranges, because that is in fact increasing strength, even if it's not in the one rep max that people generally think about it. And then I also am rem um, reminded of a conversation that we had also, Dave, regarding how when we were younger, maybe it was like college, we were both throwing up like the 110s or whatever on incline bench for like the same amount of reps mm -hmm. or even more than we're doing now. Yeah. And you can always kind of look at quality of movement and tempo and kind of things that make your rep more difficult. But I would argue that in just raw power magnitude, like I think I was probably stronger like 15 years ago, but I think that I have more muscle mass now. Um, so, I mean, without going down a rabbit hole, but like sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and like all the other things that come along with actually strictly focusing on hypertrophy and then optimizing the variables of nutrition and all these things that maybe I wasn't doing in college because I was drinking and partying and all these right. different things mm -hmm. compared to what I'm doing now. So, um, anyway, Aaron thoughts. Yeah. One thing that Dave said that I wanted to kind of just elaborate on a little bit more when you're getting the, the kind of the neural, uh, practicing like the neural adaptation or being comfortable with that, I think is a big component of the strength. 
aspect. So if you're moving, like let's say you're increasing your 30 rep max, um, just because you move your 30 rep max from 100 pounds to 130 pounds, let's say you're super out of practice in the one to three rep, ma- rep max range like myself. I haven't put maximal loads on like a back squat in probably two years, coming up on two years. So it's one of those things. It's like maybe maybe the absolute raw strength is still there, your ability to express it because you haven't you're out of practice with some of those, you know, high end kind of neural connections that you need to make in order to move that one rep max. So I think that's like something to kind of note on too. Maybe if you spent the same amount of time, once you've gone from, you know, add 30 pounds to that 30 rep max, if you then take the same amount of time and practice those lower rep ranges, you might be able to re, you know, establish that, express that full strength. Uh, one thing I did want to follow up with what you said, Brian. Yeah. I think like right now I'm, maybe arguably the the most muscular I've ever been, but I am far from maximal strength, like completely, because I've completely changed my training, you know, and I, being staying healthy is a very big proponent of mine and goal of mine right now. And for a long time, when I was like maximally str- strong, I had all sorts of health uh, or sorry, like, um, I guess health like issues with joints and, and muscles and stuff like that. So I think that was a really interesting point that you made, Brian. Yeah. You can't get, uh, you can't get strong and big if you can't be in the gym. Exactly. It took me a very long time to, uh, wrap my head around that. Cool. Well, kind of along the same lines of this topic. Um, and also considering the, you know, the way that Abel came up with that cool formula, which was by height in centimeters minus a hundred is essentially, your weight in kilograms where you'll be lean and have a six pack and beach lean as you guys call it. Right. So, um, I think coming up with that formula is really cool. And I have an idea of something that might be like just generally achievable for someone with average genetics over a training career for somebody that trained for this. How reasonable do you guys think it is that someone could hit the one times body weight overhead press, 1.5 body weight bench, two body weight squat, 2.5 body weight deadlift. So looking at about a 200 pound person, that would be 200, 300, 400, 500. So if we're assuming average genetics, do we think that most people out there should be able to achieve that over the course of 10, 15, 20 years of training? So, um, Abel, let me just clarify with that formula. So you would probably with that formula, put us right around average. Would you say that's right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I think that would put us at like a beach lean, like 185 or so, maybe 187. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I was intentionally vague about the, like the, the actual number that I gave, because I didn't say you can be that weight at 10% body fat or something, because like what you mm-hmm. consider to be beach lean is kind of subjective. I, I really mainly came up with that formula for, like some of these clients with whom I almost had to have therapy sessions like every week when we talked because, um, you know, they didn't put on a lot of size thus far and they were questioning if they should even do this in the long term. And it's like, okay, what's a realistic expectation? And then I was like, well, okay, so there are these formulas out there, like the, the Burkham model, the, the Casey Butt model, the, um, yeah, just the general FFMI model, like, yeah, whatever, 25 is the natural limit. Like, that doesn't going to help someone who, or that isn't going to help someone who is, you know, an FFMI of 19 and has been training for two years and is super discouraged because, yeah, you're not going to get to 25 FFMI. Like, that's that's a no-brainer. So, like, what is something I observed over time? And it's like, yeah, you can look good. That's the bottom line at that body weight. And that was kind of my point with that. Yeah. 
Um, to answer you directly, Brian, I think one thing that we have to be careful of is that everybody, everybody's going to have a bias, of course, and everybody's going to be influenced by what they're able to achieve. So almost everybody seems to think that they're average, right? I mean, if you're Ben Pekulski and Doug Miller, you think your only genetic advantage is your grit and ability to work harder than everybody else. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's... And so you see that. And also, like, if you have, like, siblings, maybe they're similar genetically. So you think, well, we can do this. You know, I have a a well-known gym owner as a patient of mine. And, I mean, the dude was, like, elite level competing in, like, Strongman and the Highland Games. I mean, like, elite, elite level. His uh, cousin was, like, an IFBB pro. And so I'm sure this guy thinks that, like, it's just because they worked really hard and, you know, today's generation are pussies and, you know, it's just stuff like that. And and so um, I think it's you have to kind of consider, like, and I think all of us having trained people, um, you get to see that perspective compared to just doing it yourself. Right. When you're training a bunch of people, you start to see, oh, wow, like I thought I was totally average or maybe below average. But now I'm seeing all these people. They're all below me. Um, and so when I think of myself, I do think, okay, I've done like a 220, 225 overhead press at about 200 pounds. So it's probably like a good scale there. Um, and then you said, well, like 300 pound bench, right? Four or 500. So, you know, I've done more than all of those, but does that mean the average, like completely average person? I mean, I would consider myself pretty much like dead average. So I do think, yeah, most people could, um, obviously a lot of people are going to surpass that very quickly. Um, but, you know, I think we probably all had people where we have to kind of like, <laughs> like Abel said, maybe almost have like a therapy session to say that like these things might not happen. And um, not to like become the podcaster here, but I, I'd also be curious on your guys thoughts on like when is a good time to have that conversation with somebody after like X number of years. Because I just had a 20 minute conversation the other day with a client of mine who said his goal was like 25 pounds more muscle. And he's been training for seven years consistently. I was like, dude, like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen naturally. Um, And, you know, it's like, I don't mean to be discouraging, but you're going to hate this journey if that's your goal. And that's the only thing you're going to be satisfied with, you know? Yeah, I think the time to have that conversation is when pragmatism is completely out the window. And you kind of look at them and you're like, you're just you're saying something that's superfluous, like it's not going to work. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't have those conversations too often because I don't know that like too many people that, how do I say this? Most of the people in my programs are, are females and Hmm. they're not, uh, they're not necessarily trying to get as big and as strong as possible all sure. the time. Um, so it's, it's kind of a different conversation, but even with the guys, like I think most of them have like, they, I don't run into too many people that, that are completely outlandish like that, that think yeah. that they can get to like two twenty five well muscled at like five ten. Right. Right. <laughs> I've had yeah, to talk to a few clients and, and tell them like, they're like, this is my goal. And I'm like, eh, you, you got maybe 12 years, you know, of like grinding, 12 months out of the year and like you can, you know, potentially get there. Um, and it's, yeah, it's one of those things that it's, it's just been like blown up of what is possible in a short period of time. Cause there's like programs and things are like pack on 12 pounds of muscle in eight weeks. And like the three of us or the four of us know, like, unless you're, you know, a 16 year old, you know, kid who's never lifted weights before, like that's not going to happen. Um, right. and it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's and, really, and really it also interesting. Just, uh, 
Sorry, didn't want me to interrupt, but I uh, just wanted to say that it's also a matter of um, while explaining that that your ideals might not be completely realistic, it's also important to emphasize that a lot of these standards that people set for themselves are completely arbitrary, and many times it's actually just not needed. Like even, you know, five pounds, which is what, like, uh, in pounds it sounds a lot more impressive, like two kilograms of muscle, like that's a lot more impressive if you actually see it in yourself visually than what you would think. Like if, I, I made a post on this on Instagram, like I think um, New Year's, or New Year's Day 2020. Uh, little did I know what a shit year is going to be. But uh, I basically showed my physique at year four, year five, year six. And between year five and year six, like the weight difference is actually marginal. But the visual difference is actually quite big. So, you know, you don't have to put on 25 pounds of muscle to look much better than you do now. So um, just wanted to add in there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I agree with all of that. And then I think Dave, you know, brings up the good point about those strength numbers that I threw out there. But, um, you know, I owned a gym for a number of years. Aaron was a member there for a number of years too. And I know that there's a bias because people that are going to even go to the gym to begin with are potentially yeah. going to be better off when they do join the gym, have better results. But, um, man, we had so many strong people in there. It was like, it was unbelievable. I mean, it almost felt like the person that couldn't squat 400 and bench 300 was like the outlier yeah and it, it like skews your perspective and makes you feel like but at the same time like if dave mcconey was in there and you you know have equal to or higher strength numbers than me on most of the big lifts like it would be the same thing like you would just fit in and you would be one of like the elite crew that just kind of hangs out at the gym and trains together and we'd bro out and be strong and like no one would know the difference aside from like the little white kid in the corner that's squatting like 150 and failing <laughs> I don't know if Aaron was about to say something there, but yeah, um, one thing I was going to say is to kind of reiterate with Brian is, you know, Brian and I were not really the elite in that gym at all. We most of the time, if even if we made the strength board, we were like number six or seven on it. And it's, you know, and there was those other guys were basically our size, you know, they were five, five, 10 to like six foot one, but we had some like really uh, not, I mean, and let's be clear, this was a CrossFit gym. This wasn't like a powerlifting gym or something mm -hmm. like that. We were doing CrossFit and there was, you know, people who were squatting 465 and stuff like that. Um, Fields hit 550. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't, I think my best squat there was 425 and that didn't even make, I don't think the top 10 on the board. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was, yeah, it was kind of one of those things. It's like, yeah, me, Brian and I were not the top in that gym whatsoever. <laughs> well, regarding like the, um, perspectives and outliers it's kind of funny because it doesn't just apply like when you hear that you're thinking like oh these are maybe not all of us but like to some degree a lot of people have like seen our work but even a guy like if you look at like omar Esau or something like that right mm -hmm. like you know eight hundred thousand uh subscribers on youtube and everything but in reality well he, he's quite strong but from a size standpoint you know it, just because he's a big name doesn't mean they're an outlier or they're like the freaks. I mean, one example I'll use from like a research standpoint is like, do any of you guys maybe able, because I've mentioned it, do any of you guys know the name Dr. Nicholas Radimus? I've heard the name on a podcast. I can't say what he does for yeah, sure though. It might've been mine because I'll probably the one to mention okay. him. So he was kind of like my mentor in college. He was the guy who like oversaw Brad Schoenfeld for his PhD. He's like highly, highly published. He's the editor in chief of the strength and conditioning journal, um, journal of strength and conditioning. But 
people don't know him because he he's a professor at a university, right? But you, people know like Lane Norton as the science guy. Lane Norton's probably what published maybe twelve papers as a co-author and maybe two of his own. Like I don't know exactly, but I'm saying like, mm-hmm. but he's face of social media, right? And and so some of the people who are like the best of the best or the most elite aren't people that you even know of. So just because they have a podcast or just because they have a YouTube channel, like there are some of these freaks like you might have seen at your gym where it's like, oh, damn, like that guy is, you know, blowing everybody away. And I mean, at my gym, I go to a pretty like low key gym right now. So I'm probably one of the stronger people there. But if I went to um, like Iron Sport Gym, if you know that one, like 30 minutes from here, I mean, I would like I don't even want to lift there (laughs) because I'd easily be like the bottom of the barrel there. So, I mean, it depends on your perspective and what you're around. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Abel? Where do you stand in the gym that you go to? Uh, in, in my gym, I'm definitely one of the stronger people. It, it's it's quite. It used to be the most stereotypical gym that you can imagine. It's like anybody who is like really impressive is on is on drugs, and it's like comically obvious because they will be huge and impressive. And sometimes you would be on the fence, like is this guy Nettie? Is it not? And then two weeks later, you see him like half the size. Then okay, he was on drugs, um, <laughs> and then like there are a couple of like buff dudes, but they're all like approaching 30% body fat. So it's it's very like very kind of stereotypical in that way. So like basically I'm the only person who is like reasonably strong and muscular and is also decently lean, which is like um which which is probably why I don't have a lot of resentment or, or bitterness or I don't have whatever body <laughs> image issues or whatever because I'm every day I'm faced with the reality like wow, I'm actually impressive. But when I went to, yeah, like Dust Gym, Vienna, um, one of the mm-hmm. best gyms, or maybe the best gym in the entire, the whole of Europe. Yeah, a very different story. Like I was definitely one of the weakest, least impressive guys there. So. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. We have a place in San Diego where I used to live called The Gym. And it's pretty much like there's IFBB pros, like a guy who placed 12th at the Olympia a couple of years ago, trains there, like just full of drugs everywhere. And I started training there right before I moved away from San Diego. And I never felt like so small and so genetically average and that nobody was watching me at all. Cause I'm like this big fish in the small sea in the CrossFit gym. And then I go into this gym and I'm just like, I'm literally like teeny, like guys are doing bench presses with one sixties and stuff. It's just unbelievable um so i don't want to spend too much more time on the genetic conversation but i do have one little interesting piece that i wanted to just discuss regarding kind of epigenetics um and we know that you can change them quickly from generation to generation um what i'm most curious about is whether we think there's possibility that the way that you are earlier in life can have an impact on what your ultimate genetic potential is in regards to hypertrophy or strength um i heard cliff wilson recently on the revive stronger podcast say that fat cells can change during puberty and it can have an impact on your physique as well as nutrient partitioning over the long term which would make you think that if it's affecting nutrient partitioning um, and the way that your fat cells are formed, that that would also impact the amount of hypertrophy that you can ultimately get. Um, I would also say that it would be interesting to think about like two twins. And I don't know if they've done a study like this, but you know, from a young age, one is like athletic and plays sports and maybe does calisthenics and stuff like this. And then you have another twin that's like a bookworm and just plays video games and like never gets off the couch. And then 
if you had them later in life come back and put them through a structured program and they did the same thing, like would the twin that was active earlier in life potentially have a better opportunity to succeed at hypertrophy later in life? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I just think it's an interesting topic. And if you guys have any thoughts on it, uh, Abel, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I Dave has uh, a lot more thoughts on this than I do, but uh, I, you okay. know, from from the limited amount of data that I've seen on that, or well, I should say that I've heard others present on that and what they have seen, it seems like there is not a huge amount of influence, and it's um, it, it's something that for me is actually nice to hear because that's something I pondered a lot that. You know, because Lyle McDonald, for example, is someone who is who commonly likes to reference, you know, like farmer kids that are lifting heavy stuff and carrying things around in puberty when you have that natural steroid cycle going on with your hormones, you know, coming along and testosterone levels are all over the place. Then, like, if you train at that time, you get, like, permanent, really impressive gains. Like, those guys get muscular and stay that way. And I always kind of uh, pondered about that, that, man, what could I have achieved if I just started this at age 15 or 14 instead of age 20? But apparently, there is, like, no real difference. Um, so, like, that that's my, my insight. But, Dave, I think uh, you might have a bit more. Yeah, I, I think from a... From an athletic and sports standpoint, it's a huge factor, right? I mean, oh, if yeah. you haven't started a sport by the time you're like a teenager, I mean, you're never going to be the best, almost always. Um, but as far as like from a hypertrophy standpoint, I, I think because like I've had people say like, oh, wow, like it's so lucky that you started at like 12 years old. I'm like I just don't know if it's really mattered. I mean, <laughs> you see so many examples and it's impossible for me to say just myself because it's like, well, what if I started later? Maybe I'd be even smaller. But you know, like, um, I think the two people I mentioned before, Ben Pakalski, Doug Miller, I think they both didn't start until like 18 or 19. Um, Stan Efferding didn't start until I think also around 18 or 19. Um, but even my brother, my brother didn't start lifting until I want to say he was like 23. And within four years, I mean, he was almost my size. I mean, he was very close to my size. And I mean, he, he the only reason I think he's not surpassed me at this point is because he's kind of become lackadaisical with it. Um, but I think if he was as consistent as I've been for the last, because now he's 31, so the last eight years, I'm sure he'd be at least my size, if not bigger. Because I mean, if you look at us, like when we played sports as kids, he clearly physically had superior genetics in terms of like when we were both wrestling and things like that. So um, could it make a difference? Maybe a little bit. I'm sure I haven't seen any research on this. Do I think it makes a huge difference? No. Now, if you're starting at like 35, yeah, then I think it's going to make a difference. But if you start somewhere between, you know, teens to 25, I don't think it makes much of a difference. Straker, you have any thoughts? This one is hard for me because it, kind of like what, what Dave said, I I do feel like the the, the phys, a, a large component or, purport, or portion of the physique and stuff I have now is because I started so young and I put on so much weight when I was young because I just, you know, was fortunate that that's what the coaches made us do for playing football. Um, I... From a pure genetic standpoint, I don't know if it, if it has that much of an influence, but one thing I always like, you know, to kind of uh, pose the question around epigenetics is, you know, if you didn't start younger, would I have 
enjoyed it this much? Would I have actually picked it up and taken it as seriously if I started at 23 after colleges as opposed to starting at like 15, 16? So from like a purely genetic standpoint, you know, I, I, I don't have a good answer for that. You know, I, um, but I think it through epigenetics, it influenced a lot because of, you know, my, how I feel about it, the joy I get out of it as a hobby. You know, I don't know if I would have picked it up at 23 after college, you know, starting a full-time job. Um, one question I did want to kind of piggyback onto this and pose with you guys is from a, um, from an epigenetic standpoint is how much do you believe in like the, um, psychological can influence the physiological with like your, your training in responses to, let's say, um, uh, uh, setting like uh, achieving, you know, maximal strength or hypertrophy. Do you think you can kind of influence that with, from a, from a psychological standpoint? I have a lot of thoughts on that. So I'll let Abel go <laughs> first, but I, I just uh, wanted to add one thing to what you said, Aaron, is that, um, to your point, when I got into this, like really young, it's like, I just wanted abs. That's all I wanted. I got really skinny. Um, so like my freshman year of high school, I was five eleven at the time and like 130 pounds. So, and then I would like bulk for nine months and then cut, which, you know, is kind of the standard now, you know, you do a yearly bulk and cut cycle, but I was like, you know, a young teen cutting and then, you know, doing too much cardio. So maybe I would have benefited myself long-term if I had my first five to seven years in this slow surplus as I just went through puberty and grew. And if I could tell my younger self, like one thing it would have been like, just never cut like the abs. First of all, you're probably not going to get them because I never really got them like what I wanted anyway, but two, just focus on getting stronger and slowly gaining weight. And, and maybe if I stayed in that chronic surplus for that long, it would have made a bigger difference, you know, instead of the crash dieting and everything that I was doing. Yeah. And that, that's a really good point you brought up because like, that's basically what I did, but on kind of benoist to me for those reasons, you know, I was right. a tall, lanky, skinny kid who, you know, was a tight end and needed to hang out and, you know, with the linemen and they all had, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 pounds on me. I needed to just continuously put on weight. So that's what I did literally all through high school. So, yeah. um, yeah, so that's, I think it's like, I might have a, a little bit of a different opinion because I, I do think that that is, a uh, a kind of an upper hand that I had. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Abel, yeah. So thoughts. Yeah, actually, I just, I just wanted to add to that something as well. And uh, just very briefly, but it kind of ties into the psychological aspect a little bit. So it's hard to separate these things because, I mean, I think if you look at a, a lifter's journey, I think from the moment when they get into lifting and then till the moment when they actually figure out what to do and they start doing things intelligently, I mean, there might be a one, two, in my case, maybe four or five year long lag time in between. So if I'm looking at myself, you know, the first one or two years, I just... I was doing all kinds of fad stuff. I was into like super slow training for a while, very minimalistic training with like one or two sets per muscle group per week. Wasn't even training legs. Then I got a little bit more intelligent. I actually got some coaching. Then I got injured. That took away like a year of productive lifting. Then I got into some eating disorders, permacutting. That delayed my progress significantly. You know, by the time I actually got on the quote unquote right track, it's been, you know, five years, maybe, maybe more. So if I could have just pushed all of that back by or put all of that a little bit earlier and could have gotten through that by the time I was 20 and not starting there, 
like who knows maybe i would be a lot more ahead now so it's it's hard to separate kind of what happens in real life and the real physiological things that are happening and then on the psychological things or the psychological aspects and how they can influence the physiological i might have to ask the word back for a second after that cuz while dave is going to talk maybe i'm i'm going to have some more thoughts coming up but i mean you would have to think that it does i mean you we all know the placebo literature and just you know it's crazy to me that placebo can actually or just the belief that something is is going to happen can actually physiologically have outcomes like raising or lowering your blood pressure you know effectiveness mm-hmm. seen in cancer treatment or i'm sure a lot of you guys know the that infamous study where they were telling people that they are on steroids where they weren't and mm-hmm. they made incredible gains and then they lost a lot of those gains as <laughs> they found found out that they were not on steroids so i mean if belief can have such an impact then you know what kind of impact can it have when it actually comes to things that you're actively doing in the gym you know how much effort you're putting into your lifts and you know if you get an extra rep on a lot of lifts every week i mean you have to think that over the years that is going to accumulate into something meaningful so like that that's my initial thought but mm-hmm. uh, dave go ahead and maybe i can think of something more well i think just in general when it comes to motivation obviously that that's going to have a huge impact on how hard you're pushing yourself and i think that motivation you know you see this in like just like a hierarchical structure in societies right like people who keep winning they win more people who are like kind of they lose they kind of get put down um it's very easy to stay motivated when things are going your way and you're winning right um, I don't know if any of you guys follow like MMA or UFC, but I just think about like some of these guys or boxing or anything where like they'll talk about, oh man, it's so hard. He trains so hard for this. It's like, yeah, but like if he was winning, like imagine being the guy who trains his ass off and then you lose and then you train your ass off again and then you lose. And that happens like four times and now you have CTE and like, what did you just do all that for, <laughs> you know? And so with lifting, it's like those first couple of years, we're all making progress and it's very easy to stay motivated, which is why a lot of people stick to it for a couple of years. And then you kind of fall off and if all of us will eventually stop making progress, but there is both the progress that we are making, you know, relative to ourselves, but then the progress we're making relative to others. So when I hear a guy like, you know, Michael Hearn or something like that say like, oh, you know, I've been so consistent for all these years. It's like, yeah, but like you've had constant, huge amounts of positive feedback for all of those years when you have somebody and this is what you know to your point brian earlier about just when you go in any gym already you're seeing at least slightly above average genetics because these are often the guys who are sticking with it right and so you know i I look at like my motivation now it's like well i've kind of stopped progressing obviously for a while now as far as like any like real serious progress Mm -hmm. but you know at least among my friends like i still look like pretty good and everything but somebody who's just not making progress that is going to be i mean what how do you tell yourself man i've put 10 years into this i barely look any different and i'm going to keep doing this like for a lot of people that's going to be a huge factor so to your point aaron i I think absolutely the psychology behind it can be a huge factor in you know the physiological changes you see over time you know and that's not even going into all the stuff abel touched on on placebo and everything there but just that positive feedback is going to be a huge factor for motivation. Yep, totally. I agree with that. That's a good point. Abel, do you have anything else to add? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the motivational aspect is a huge thing. And, and it's something that you, you cannot really teach motivation to someone. Like you, to some extent, you either have it or not have it. And it's um, in Hungarian, we actually have this saying that uh, your appetite comes while you eat. So sometimes you just kind of have to recommend like, hey, give it an honest go and see if you get to like it over time. But, um, you know, I, I see it in my clientele as well. Like some people are just less motivated to train than others. And, uh, you know, it's you, you can tell by the language that they're using. It's like, well, I, I feel like my energy levels are so low during training. I get so drained while I'm doing it. And it's like, yeah, man, I, you're just not enjoying this whole thing as much as I'm doing, as I do. And, and that's fine. You know, like, um, for you, a more kind of minimalistic kind of lifestyle approach to this whole thing is probably just a better way to go. So, um, but yeah, again, like that, that's probably going to mean that you're not going to go for those extra grindy reps, which momentarily mm-hmm. the significance of that is, is nominal. But over time, I, I do think that adds up to something meaningful. So, um, so yeah, basically just echoing what Dave said there. Yeah, there's one little thing I wanted to kind of add on to that that you brought up that was really, really good. And it's really relevant because I literally did it earlier today. So one of my big goals has been growing my legs, right? Because they have just grown very poorly comparatively to my upper body over my lifting career. I've reached this point where like I'm now they're growing, but I have to like push myself really hard in these. And like, I'm sure you guys know when you're, you know, doing quads or hamstrings or whatever, it's not a pleasant feeling. You don't get like a like the, the hamstring pump, the quad pump doesn't feel like good, right? Like a shoulder or chest pump does. It's kind of sick feeling. And because I had this podcast after, I was like, I can't push myself as hard as I normally would because I have like something I want to do with obviously, you know, recording this episode. And it's one of those things where like someone who's maybe kind of new at it, like that's not a good feeling. They don't want to go chase that. They're not going to like push those extra five or six reps where, you know, mentally you're exhausted, but from a physically standpoint, you can, you know, you can get a, another, you know, three, four, five reps in there. And it's one of those things is I'm uh, investing in the outcome of what those four reps week over week will give me over time, even though in the moment it feels absolutely horrible and it's like not fun per se at all. So it's one of those things is like, I know investing in that will give me a return uh, but I only know that because I've been doing it for so long and have that psychological kind of repetitive, you know, positive reinforcement from it. I also think it's interesting how the, like, I almost wonder, you said you've had a poor response to legs. And and I think in general, most of us would agree training legs feels harder and, and less pleasant than like, you know, getting a chest pump. But I also find that, you know, I'll think of like, oh, my favorite lift. And it's also, it's often the lift that's going up currently Right. And when like I was, you know, I reintroduced lap pull downs after only doing pull ups for a very long time. And each week was progressing because I was new to it again. And I was like, yeah, I, I really like this. Why I take this out. And then after a while, it obviously stalled. And now I'm doing like three really hard sets. And it's like still not going anywhere. still not going. I'm like, man, this sucks. Like, I don't like this exercise anymore. And I almost wonder, like, I think a lot of us have learned to enjoy the pain where like, imagine if you felt out of, like just out of nowhere, you just woke up feeling how you feel when you're fully pumped after a set. You'd be like, what the hell is wrong with me? I need to go to the <laughs> ER, right? But mm-hmm. we we love it. And it's like, damn, we got this sick pump. And you you start to enjoy it. Um, and it seems like most people who do this a long time, they you almost have to get to that point. Like my sister just started working out and she sent me these snaps. She's like, I'm dying. How could anybody like this? And she went from zero to 10, like for whatever, you know, some <laughs> online trainer told her this was a great routine and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
I don't want to demotivate her, but I'm like, there's just like 0% chance she's going to stick with it because she went, I mean, she's hating it with how much she's doing it, but I'll do something. And I'm like, you know, sprints or something that I've learned to love. And it's almost like you have to develop this kind of weird relationship with pain, you know? Yeah, yeah actually. For sure. No, that's very interesting. Okay. Yes, go ahead, Abel. S- sorry. Just wanted to add one brief thing. Like that is actually one thing that is purely psychological. And I actually do think that's holding me back. And that is exactly that, that this high rep, like super hardcore leg workouts is just something I, I just couldn't bring myself to like all the way up until now. Like I, I've had some stints where I was doing 30 rep leg presses because whatever my knees were hurting or something. <laughs> and I, I just needed to find something that I can do. And like anytime the, the, the lift was over. I was like, never this shit again, like never. And then I still <laughs> went back and, and did it for a few more weeks. But when I finally decided that, okay, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. I was like, man, this is so great that I don't have to do this. And and maybe that's because I was doing a lot of, um, I was into kayaking and a lot of these sports with a huge kind of uh, cardio element. So we did a lot of high intensity running and uh, long distance running. And I, I just got to hate this feeling of my lungs burning so even if I could, I would be doing sets of five and six on the leg extension even, but my knees would be killing me if I did that. <laughs> so, and, and maybe that's, that is something that if I had the same level of work ethic there as, um, like, like Mike Israel, for example, I'm seeing his leg workouts or hex squat sessions where he's throwing up afterwards. If I could bring myself to that level of effort, I'm like, I'm not saying it would be a complete game changer. Like my quads would be whatever, five inches bigger, but I do think my leg development would be more and more ahead compared to how it is now. So that's just another anecdote kind of supporting what we said. The yeah, hardest, I mean, I say, the two hardest sets I've ever done in my life were uh, probably one. I wanted to see what I could rep out with 135 on squats. So I did uh, 70 reps back squat and 50 reps front squat. And the front squat was worse because it's just choking you the whole time, you know? And I mean, but, but I actually enjoyed it when I did it. Like, it's kind of, like I said, it's almost like this like sick relationship is horrible, but it was like pushing myself, like, what can I do here? And at that, those high reps, it's just like a mental thing, you know? But do you enjoy high intensity cardio then too? Um, if there's like a progression involved, yeah, just to do it. No. And sorry, I feel bad. We cut you off like five times, Brian. So, sorry, man. Go <laughs> no, ahead, no, man. you're, 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 you're you're fine. Um, I'm just trying to moderate over here. Um, no, no, totally cool. So, uh, the, I was going to just say that if you had to progress that squat pattern every week though, then it might reach a point where mentally yeah. you're feeling like Abel did with the 30 rep sets and you no longer want to do it. So, yeah. um, I think that finding, you know, the rep zone for, for each lift that works for you is important. And I recently, um, kind of discovered that working with Brian Miner and he had me doing a bunch of stuff in the, uh, we were doing, kind of like myo rep sets they were more like cluster sets so you'd have like a feeder set that was like you know 20 to 25 reps and then you'd rest 30 seconds and do whatever you could and then rest 30 Mm -hmm. seconds and do whatever you could again and i just grew to hate those i mean they're like so effective because you get three sets in such a short amount of time but like i just i don't like high reps to begin with and when you're going like 25 18 13 or something like that in a matter of two and a half minutes i literally wanted to die on what you did that for legs uh, we didn't do it a whole ton for legs. It was mostly for like arms, delts. Um, yeah, mostly the smaller muscle groups. It was like an effective way for us to get volume in without a whole ton of time. But I still am of the mindset that I would rather do three sets of eight to 12 with a normal rest in between. Um, 
And I think that that just speaks to like my personality and, you know, like Abel, I wouldn't want to do sets of 20 to 30 on any leg movement. Um, I even do leg extensions in the eight to 12 range too. So, (laughs) um, yeah, totally. They're really painful even in that range. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so kind of, do you have something to say? Go for it. No. Okay. So, uh, one of the things Abel mentioned was the hit crew. Um, the, you know, the one or two sets all out to failure. And you said that you spent a little bit of time kind of doing a little bit of the hit stuff. I actually spent about six to 12 months, um, myself doing some hit or as they, they called it hard gainer, which is kind of related to hit. Mm. Um, and the general idea was you pick basically three movements, um, a hip, a leg, a push and a pull, and you basically go one or two sets to failure. And then you rest three or four days and you do it again with three new movements and rest three or four days and start the microcycle over again. Um, so that's like one side of the spectrum. And I think that while that amount of volume is clearly not sufficient for me, um, one interesting aspect of their argument as hard gainer and hit proponents was that they were, as they describe hard gainers, their genetics were below average or average or whatever. And they're of this belief that because their genetics are poor, that they need to do these like super short brief sessions. Cause they just don't, they can't recover otherwise. Um, and I think that that's a lot of kind of what Abel was saying with the hit people too. Um, but the literature kind of speaks to the opposite. The literature speaks to like that Schoenfeld study was like, okay, we had some non-responders here at like 20 sets. And then we went to, 36 sets or whatever. And there was less non-responders. Then we went to 45 sets and there were even less non-responders. So that's all super interesting. And all kind of brings me to my point that all of us kind of went through a period where we were training with a little higher volumes. I know Dave was in the like 10 to 20 set range for a little while. And now you're down at like six and able, you did your 30 to 50 rep or 30 to 50 set per muscle group experiments. Straker, I know you've done your fair share of high volume work, but we've all kind of settled into what is a much more moderate level of volume. Um, so why do you think that is that, that we, we tried this, it didn't work. We came back to this. We're now here. Um, and how do we know that the level of volume we're doing, we're progressing only because we're not carrying as much fatigue as we were with the higher level of volumes? Anyone want to speak? Go for it. Yeah, I'll, I'll start. I, yeah. It's interesting because I think that that super high volume, it can and will likely get to an unsustainable standpoint. Maybe that is from a physiological and a psychological standpoint, right? When you, when you don't want to go train and you're like, and it, and those, those super, you know, you know, one to two sets to failure after like, let's say you're doing it for, like you said, you did it for like six to 12 months. Like that's a long time that takes its toll on you psychologically. I think you kind of may also just kind of reach a point of diminishing returns where your fatigue ends up being too high and on top of it. So I think it's, I, I don't know, everyone kind of will generally fall back into that more moderate approach. Also like the super high volume generally means you're going to have a, a, a lower recovery capacity, which can lead to, you know, joint potential joint issues, maybe injuries. Um, I kind of just going back to what I first said, maybe sustainability is why you will kind of settle back into that middle range. Uh, Dave, what do you think? Yeah. I, I mean, um, you know, you mentioned I've done 10 to 20 sets, but I've done significantly higher than that. I mean, I've done 20 to 30, uh, very brief stints of even higher than that. But, um, I just, 
I don't know. I remember Scott Stevenson asking me one time, he's like, well, what have you found really works best for you? And I was like, dude, I don't know. Like everything kind of seems to work about the same, which sounds ridiculous. Like how can you train 15, whatever, 17 years now and not know what works for you? And it's not that I can't like pinpoint things. It's just that like a lot of the routines have kind of been similar for me. And I've mentioned numerous times now when I was doing a, like a pull-up specialization phase and I was doing 30 plus sets for back and I was resting my pecs. So I was doing like literally two sets a week for chest and my strength on back and chest exercises were progressing similarly. Like it was just kind of like, all right, there was like a level and I know Abel probably touched on it that he's done super high volumes and it was like, yeah, you can recover, but it's not doing any more for you. So it's like, okay, here's the stimulus and you can do more, but is doing more just taken away from your recovery. Now, I think you asked Brian, like, do we know that we are able to grow in the lower volume specifically because we're able to recover more. And, and I don't know if that's like the specific reason. I just think more often isn't better. And it's this weird contrast because we're all taught, you know, like growing up, like the harder you work, the more you get out of it, you get out what you put in all this like nonsense with lifting. And, and I mean, and there's certain areas of life where that is the case, although there's plenty of areas where it's not the case, but, um, and, and again, I think April and I were just kind of frustrated yesterday hearing, Doug Miller and people talk about him as like, well, you know, I've just worked so hard and that's why I'm at where I'm at. And it's like, dude, like so many people have worked so hard and are nowhere near where you are. Um, not to get back to the genetics thing, but just to say that I, I know what the literature says, like you said, Brian, it, it seems to contradict what a lot of us have experienced. Um, I, I don't know why that is. I could, it's almost like I'm not surprised that in this bubble of this short term research study, that higher volumes got higher gains. Um, another thing, though, is that they control for calories. Like they, they tend to say, don't eat, you know, differently. And to me, it's like, how do like a, a, a no gainer, like the people who like just don't gain at all. Um, it's like where you just, you, if you were in a calorie surplus, you're going to gain some lean mass, right? So is, is that a big factor in these studies? I don't know. But I can't tell you how many people have come to me doing this, you know, weird volume progressions and very high volume. And I'm like, dude, you're doing so much just train. Like, and like, I, I need like them to trust me. I'm like, dude, two to three days a week. We're not going to keep you here, but that's all we're going to start with. And sometimes I'm even surprised by how long we can keep them at this low volume before needing to increase at all. Um, so I don't know if that directly answered your question, but just in the sense that a lot of us share that experience of that, that moderate volume seems to be good. And, and, it's very rare you see anybody who's been doing this, you know, 20 plus years, who's now doing 40 sets a week. You know, you just don't tend to see that. For sure. I agree. I think maybe more my point is along the kind of what I finished with along the lines of like, how do we know that, okay, so we're getting stronger at six sets or eight sets or 10 sets or whatever it is that's lower than maybe what we were doing. But how do we know that we're just carrying less fatigue and that we're getting stronger because of that. And maybe we could handle more fatigue, which would then potentially enhance hypertrophy. And it's, it's kind of like a lower version of the Israel argument, which is that if you're progressing in strength, then maybe your fatigue is too low and you could potentially get uh, more volume on the table that would then potentially enhance hypertrophy. And any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, he's the first person I've ever heard say that. Like if you're getting stronger, it's actually like a problem. <laughs> Because you could do even more volume. And it seems like he's almost arguing, like, do as much volume so that you're not progressing in strength anymore, which I don't know. Like I mean, regressing, it's preferably. Yeah, it's just, com 
Right. I mean, <laughs> and again, I, I, I feel like every other podcast I'm on, I have to say, like, I'm not trying to talk shit on Mike because I'm really not. It's just some of the things like, and again, I'm hearing a lot of these things out of context. You know, somebody sends me like a quick blurb and it's, you know, so, but I just, I, I've never heard anybody ever recommend that. Um, I, and I know Mike believes in getting stronger over time. Like, I, I know he talks about that. Um, but it's not the way I train. It's not the way I recommend people train. So I'll leave it at that. One thing I would like cool. to add on that really quick is one thing is when we say like, okay, you just add more volume. It's kind of at this like expectation that the effort, the quality of movement that you're going to do on like movement, you know, four, five, and six is the same as one, two, three. And that's just a massive kind of like oversight. And like, especially with like a big muscle group, like back or legs. Like imagine if you're like, okay, movement one is squat. Movement two is, you know, a, 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 a leg extension. And then movement three, you're going to go into, let's say, um, like a hack squat. And your hacks, like your ability to produce like, you know, quality effort and output on that hack squat is going to be severely diminished because you, you know, just went hard on squats and leg extensions. So that like the quality of that volume past a certain threshold will kind of drop considerably. So that's like a, a caveat that I would definitely like to just make sure people who are listening here is kind of understanding. Good point. Able. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I mean, there's, there's so much to that. And I, I think, um, so there's a couple of things that we know. So for one, we have the inverted U curve of the, that re represents the relationship between volume and hypertrophy. And we know that up to a point with more volume, you get more gains. After some point, you're not getting any more gains. You're getting the same gains, and there is more fatigue, but you're able to handle that, and you're still able to overload and to progress. And only when you've way past that kind of optimal sweet spot where you're getting the maximal gains for the amount of volume that you're doing, once you've only passed that to a crazy extent is when you actually start to slow yourself down. So... You know, to get back to my anecdote, when I was doing 50 sets, I was still able to progress. Like I was getting stronger in the gym. Exactly where was I on that curve? It's, it's really hard to tell. I was actually dropping off in a couple of lifts. So probably I was actually on the downward slope already. But, um, you know, I'm able to progress on 10 sets a week and I'm also able to progress on 50. So what does that tell us? That the optimum is something like 30. And uh, so, you know, this just all makes the whole thing murkier. And um, when people are asking me about, this includes clients, this includes DMs that I'm getting, uh, comments that I'm getting on my YouTube videos, you know, people are saying things like, well, but if I'm still able to recover and I'm still progressing in the gym, then shouldn't more volume result in more gains? My answer to that is, well, maybe or maybe not. Like, you don't <laughs> know. If you're making good gains now, I would be cherishing that and i would run with that for as long as possible because your number one priority is keeping your progression as linear as it can be and then to just speak of that point of we don't know how much more volume would result in extra gains the thing is that um if you increase your training volume even if strength progression is still great you cannot really like you cannot really diagnose whether what you're doing is working better or not because the relationship between volume and strength is not nearly as strong as it is between hypertrophy and volume so you know to some extent you just kind of have to trust the process whether you're doing 20 sets or 25 
if progression is still good in the gym, that's a good indication, but you cannot really tell if you're actually making better progress. You can only really measure that in your actual muscle mass, but since we cannot measure that very accurately, especially not in the short term, you just kind of have to believe that, well, based on everything that we know, probably I'm on the right track. So if you have to kind of trust the process blindly anyway, wouldn't you rather trust it on something that is actually sustainable? You can have good intentionality in the gym. You can really put in maximum effort because you know that you don't have to do an extra, whatever, 25 sets of total work on that training session. I think it's just much more practical for most people. And also as a coach, you know, when I'm overseeing someone's progress, if they are doing 20 sets a week, whereas they could probably only do 10 and still progress, it's just much trickier to actually diagnose when something is going wrong. Like this way, I'm going at their training log. I'm seeing, okay, this is what you did here, here. Okay, the solution is very easy. You probably just have to change these couple of things. And I think you will be on the right track again. But if they are doing a ton of volume, I'm always kind of in that limbo of, man, maybe you're doing a little bit too much or maybe you're actually making progress. It's just fatigue is masking it a little bit. So maybe there is some weird fitness fatigue relationship going on here. I don't want to make all those kinds of speculations when I'm working together with someone. And then all of that gets even murkier when you inc include, you know, progressing in sets week to week. Like a lot of people, I'm just looking at what they're doing and it's like, man, it's so much shit, like so many different variables. Like ideally it would be freaking load, you know, the reps that you're doing, the exercises are the same. And it's like, no, I'm substituting this in here and then this metabolite phase and strength phase and this many sets and RIR is changing. It's like, bro like it could be 10 different things that could have gone wrong and that's why you're not progressing so yeah that's my that's my rant no that's a really good point i like that a lot and um i would say too that to, to one of the points i think both you guys actually made and maybe aaron too all of you guys um the the lower volume does allow you to put more acute focus on the quality of your movement and for me, I think that the main reason that I found myself moving lower and lower in volume is that I was putting so much into each set, into each rep, and it required me to rest much longer between sets to be able to continue to put in that level of quality of effort. And sessions were just getting ridiculously long. Um, and I know that this speaks to some of the science where like you can either do like a whole shit ton of sets and barely rest at all, or you can do like less sets and take really long rests. And that latter one, that's my jam. I want to do less sets and rest more. And I feel like I get a whole shit ton more out of training that way. Yeah, that that literature to me, it's like why, I mean, I could see like some very rare instances, but like why would you choose to do less rest and more volume? Like that's just significantly harder. And you're saying the results are going to be the same. Like, of course, I want to rest longer and do less sets. <laughs> I know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so guys, we have more topics i can totally cut out a few of them and just hit the one that i really want to hit or um, we can come back to a part two or we can just continue talking for another hour <laughs> uh, well i can't talk for another hour um <laughs> but more than happy to do a part two do you want to do maybe like one more and then do the rest another one or abel yeah that sounds good to me too all right, cool. Well, the question that I really wanted to talk on um, is psychology of dieting. I think this is really interesting. And I know that I've heard you guys discuss this on podcast too. Um, I made an Instagram post about this a while ago and Aaron chimed in and we had a little chat about it on there as well. But kind of the idea of flipping what the Campbell study did and doing it in reverse. So 
for the listeners, the Campbell study basically took five days at a deficit and then refed with two days at maintenance. And I'm thinking about flipping that and doing five days at maintenance and two days in a deficit or potentially even six days at maintenance and one day fasted, which is an approach that I've used before and really, really liked. Um, so yeah, dude, speak to it. Any thoughts? Have you tried it? Have you used it with clients? Um, what do you guys think? Uh, Aaron, do you want to start off with this one? I'll start off. Yeah. The first thing I will say is the it, here it's making a massive assumption that sticking to it is going to, you know, be like, like that's where we're setting our baseline. And that's a massive assumption to make, especially when working with clients. Um, it can be challenging enough to get someone just to be compliant for seven days in a row, you know? So, uh, making that massive kind of uh, shift to like, Hey, these two days need to be super specific in this, you know, certain context and these other ones, that's kind of a, a, a good starting part there. It's like, how realistic may this be? Um, another thing that I wanted to kind of bring up is like your, your shifts in your um, like your water storage and glycogen glycogen storage can kind of maybe mask some of your pro- progress or falsely uh, give you some false positives on rates and the thing there could be is uh, how good or accurate is your data going to be. You might have to extrapolate it over a couple weeks to see if the cycle is, you know, working um, on paper. I think it, it could work. Um, I think for me personally, I just like to keep it pretty, pretty basic because I know it will work. Um, and I don't have to wait a couple cycles to see. I have done personally some of the experiments with like cyclical ketogenic and stuff. And from a psychological standpoint, I find it much more challenging. Um, but I think for people who maybe have different schedules or something like that, like the six and one fast could be really, really beneficial. But I think it's again, like all things with dieting is really going to come down to the individual in the context that applies within them. Um, one last thing to kind of point out with some of the bigger diet too could be like how, what is the genetic propensity for people with their blood sugar, right? So someone whose blood sugars, uh, run a little bit lower, should they be dieting, you know, for an entire day? I don't know if that's probably the best option. Um, let's say you're someone whose blood sugars run, you know, super, super high. Maybe some, uh, maybe something like this going with the five and two could be more beneficial for you. So again, down all, like it always comes down to a dieting individual context. So I'll go, I guess. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I, I've done like all these different protocols. Um, I currently and have for over a year now do one 24 hour fast. Um, part of it is allows me to eat more on the other days. Part of it is, I mean, this is even when bulking up and, uh, part of it allows me just like a break in like GI wise. Cause I do have some GI issues. So it's just like a nice break to not have to eat anything. Also more productive on that day. If I could just like to not have to like stop and make my food all the time. Um, I know, uh, Brad Loomis actually did the reverse of Campbell a while ago where he would have two really big deficit days. Um, and then the other five days he was just eating normally. He's the first person I heard doing that. This was like, I don't know, five years ago. Um, but I'm sure he wasn't the first person to do it. I've not done it that way, but I do like the idea. Um, and I think it, it depends on your schedule. Like it's very easy. Well, it's easier to have a big deficit when you're really busy, right? So like for me, I do my fast days. Well, I finish eating at like, you know, seven o'clock on Sunday, and then I eat again at seven o'clock on Monday. And a lot of people think when I say 24 hour fast, it's like a whole day of not eating. 
but that would really be like 36 hours. Like if I went all Monday without eating, that's more like 36, which is also, I think, okay to do. It's just not what I do. Um, but that day, I honestly don't even really think about it. Like I'm just so busy. I, you know, I'm seeing patients all day. It's just something that I think about. So for some people, um, I, I think the five, two with like the two days higher works for a lot of general population because that just falls into the weekend. So, okay, they're working, they're busy, maybe they have kids, they're taking to school, whatever. On the weekend, they can just eat more normally. Um, that's something I've done a lot because you just don't have to think about it that much. Uh, but I think they're all viable. I've not seen a huge difference in terms of like muscle retention when dieting. Um, and I, I know, Brian, you asked more from like the psychological standpoint, because um, I do think physiologically, I think they can all work. Um, psychologically it's hard because I think it's, it's so variable. Like I really like intermittent fasting. Some people hate intermittent fasting and that's just individuals. So, um, the psychological thing, I think it's just going to depend on the person and also not just what they want, but what's good for them. You know, like there are people who ask me, can we incorporate like a really high day, like a cheat day, but I know they have a history of like binge eating. Then I'm probably going to steer them away from that because whether or not they want to do it, Sometimes what you want to do is just not good for you, like long-term for your success. That's a good point. Real quick before Abel goes, I have a question on your, uh, your, when you're 24 hour fast, do you eat a big meal at the end of the day? Or is that just like a normal dinner? Um, it's about, so normally like a normal day might be like 3000 calories and that would be maybe like, I don't know, 800, 800, 1400. Um, it's probably about. 1200 1400 calories so it's, it's still a big meal but all of my last meals are usually bigger meals i'm almost this exact same as you with that too i always thought the 24 hour and 36 hour uh distinction was super important because people do always assume that when you say 24 hour fast they always assume yeah you're going the entire day all right abel what you got to say bro yeah i mean um Dave and I had a lot, a lot of back and forth on the whole like refeeding kind of uh, strategies. And one, one of my main concerns was always that you have these two days when you're doing like say five days low, two days high, is that you're putting those two days on a pedestal and then all of those other five just seem so much worse. And maybe you're also eating some other foods that you wouldn't eat on your like normal days or lower days. So your cravings for that are are just much higher during those lower days. And um, I, I definitely seen a lot of people running into trouble with that. And I've definitely went through that myself. So I was following a couple of diet templates early on, which had that one really huge like cheat day or carb load or whatever. And I noticed that after like two or three of these cycles, the whole week was just spent with me basically looking forward to that one day. And um, I think it can be problematic from that standpoint. But as Dave said, like for a lot of people, that's just the most practical thing to do because, you know, during the week they're distracted. They have all these things. It's much easier to adhere to kind of lower numbers. And then on the weekend, maybe they want to go out with their families and it's just much easier to make it work if they have a little bit more like high or caloric allotment and i think the reverse of that I, I i am actually intrigued by that idea because you're basically flipping the whole script so basically most of your days are enjoyable and it's only two days when you're pushing a little bit harder so it's um it's kind of like your normal days seem even more enjoyable because you have these kind of the reference point changes for two days of the week and 
Also, potentially from a physiological perspective, there might be some benefits because on most days the calories are higher. So, and if we go off of the idea that your body responds to what is being signaled to it chronically, the chronic signaling here is actually higher calories and the low calories are only coming in occasionally. So maybe there will be less metabolic adaptation, maybe better better muscle retention. A lot of that is up in the air and is, is quite theoretical, or, although there is some promising evidence for that. But I think from a psychological perspective, it can be good. I think with aggressive calorie cycling, you have to be wary with whom you're applying that to. So um, I think for some people, just the idea of having distinct days is already a, um, an adherence decrement because consistency mm. and routine is just what keeps them in the game. And, you know, just like with the refeeds, with this one, you can also get into some bad psychology. So, you know, for example, if you put these really low days, let's say a fast or whatever, only a thousand calories, you do that on rest days. And that's your strategy. On my workout days, I'm going to eat more. On my rest days, I'm going to slash my calories. Like, like in, in some people, it can actually induce like a mild form of exercise bulimia. It's like, okay, when I'm training, I get to eat. When I don't train, I have to starve. And then maybe, you know, there's some justification going on in the the people that are susceptible for this that, well, I'm going to do my whatever 1500 calorie day tomorrow anyway. So I'm going to overeat a little bit more today. You know what? I'm just going to go even lower tomorrow instead of 1500. I'm only going to eat 500. So you can get into some bad cycles with that, just like with anything. But in general, I'm I'm optimistic about it. Very interesting. Yeah, good points. I think my uh, perspective is is similar to kind of what you were saying with the majority of the days being one certain way and that potentially creating just fostering a better environment, um, potentially physiologically, which I didn't even bring up, but also the psychologically just feeling that, okay, like I can get through this because in most days it's normal and then I just have to kind of like ramp it up for this one day. But again, I can see, you know, the issues that would be applied in either of those contexts too. Um, before we wrap up here, any final thoughts on any of that, that topic, any of the other topics? I have a question. I thought I would give a brief actually, um, Oh God, sir. <laughs> there is some lag in the, um, there is some lag time the, here. So that's why we talk yeah, over each other. Yeah. There's a little lag. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've kind of all said that at one point we were stronger than we are now. Um, and I'd say for a lot of things, I'm at peak strength, but as you and I talked about Brian, like I look at some of my lifts in college when I was like 20 pounds lighter, I'm like, how the hell was I lifting that? Like proportionally, it's just very different. But, um, have you guys seen the opposite? Have you ever gotten stronger for reps on an exercise, but did not grow like over time, like a significant amount? Yeah. Squatting. I think like it's a something that Brian and I will talk about often was has and, and really what kind of shifted us into the type of training we're doing now. Like there was through a large part of my like, you know, CrossFit career, we my squat progressed a lot, but my legs just like never really grew. And some of that was like my squat form, some of that was how my levers kind of um worked out. So I mean I'm not I'm not saying like I regressed or anything like that, but uh definitely just was like a, a strength thing and not you know, I just wasn't putting myself in the mechanically advantageous positions for like hypertrophy. And that was like a big part of it. We also never, um, did isolation movements. Like 
I maybe did a leg extension and a leg curl like five times in my youth because I was young and I just focused on compound movements. Um, and then I got into CrossFit and we just squatted a whole shit ton and deadlifted. And then I came out of CrossFit and I think my best squat ever was four oh five for three maybe, but my legs were by far my worst body part. Um, I deadlifted a shit ton too, but it was a question mark deadlift. Like I didn't actually use my glutes and my mm. hamstrings properly. Um, so it wasn't until I started actually performing movements specifically for hypertrophy and including those isolation movements that I actually saw some growth occur, um, in the thighs. Cool. And I guess we can say, I know one of your questions towards the end, I think was talking about isolation movements as a gauge for hypertrophy. So maybe we can yep. save the full discussion for part two. Yep. Cool, cool. Abel. Yeah, if I may just go on a very brief rant on the HIT uh, super slow um, thing, which we mentioned briefly. <laughs> um, no, it's just you mentioned that you did it as well and that um, they're they're marketing it as like this is for hard gainers. And, and the thing is, like, I would have no issues with that if it was made for hard gainers and then the hard gainers actually saw growth after that to a significant extent. Or if the people who are marketing it often, I, I don't know all of these, but some of them I do, if those still didn't look like hard gainers themselves. So I, I would want some sort of transformation to actually buy into it. And, like, so this, this is one aspect where like talking about the genetic aspect of things can actually hold people back and kind of bothers me because like basically the message that I've seen put out there is look like what you've been doing so far hasn't worked for you and look you don't have great genetics like all of those people that you see on Instagram those have amazing genetics so we are going to put you on this super slow like one set per week type routine and look don't expect amazing results because you're a hard gainer so when six months later, the person still hasn't put on a pound of muscle, then it's like, well, like, you're a hard gainer. Like everybody else is a freak. So like, like that, that I think is highly counterproductive. And, and also like some of these things like, well, yeah, I mean, look, the higher volume stuff can work for others and higher, like even anything higher than one set per week. Like that can work for people who can recover from that. Um, but the people who come to us, like they got zero results with anything else. And it's like, well, I mean, what do you mean zero results with anything else? I mean, did they do an intelligently programmed, like hypertrophy-oriented routine, like what Eric Helms is putting in his muscle and strength pyramids, for example? Like, I highly doubt it. I'm sure that they've done a lot of, like, bogus fed routines that they saw from some, whatever, Roy did a bodybuilder. But anyway, just wanted to put it out there. It's been bugging me. <laughs> I... uh no, I, I could totally relate, man. I, um, during those days that I did that, I was just getting into fitness. It was probably like year two. And I just kind of fell into this like hard gainers forum. And, uh, they were promoting the idea of the 200, 300, 400, 500 as like the top level. Like if you really commit yourself for, for a lifetime and you train really intelligently with these like hit hard gainer approaches, you might be able to hit those numbers at 200 pounds at some point in the future. Um, that's good. And so that you're very much right that they're holding themselves back genetically. Yeah, but that's good. That that's much better. Um, then then you followed some better hit circles because the one that I've seen, it's like the expectations that they put out are so like ridiculously modest that that's actually holding people back. I think. 
Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, the guys I was uh, I was in the forum with, they're um, they like I was saying it was one squat or hip pattern movement, one push and one pull each day. Um, but they would generally start off either with like basically a five rep max or a twenty rep max on their main hip leg movement. So it'd be like a twenty rep squat or like a twenty rep deadlift. And, uh, I remember seeing some of those people trying to, trying to get through those last few reps of a 20 rep deadlift. And it was not a pretty sight. <laughs> That's awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for, for coming on guys. I really appreciate your time. And I know we do have a few more topics that, um, hopefully down the road we can, we can get you guys back on and talk a little bit more of this training side of things. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. Cool. Straker, any last words? Yeah. Uh, Dave Abel, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find more information about you guys, uh, social media channels, website, et cetera. Sure. So my YouTube is brains and gains. Uh, Instagram is Dave underscore McConey and website is a Dr. Dave McConey.com. Yep. Uh, my YouTube is SSD able. Instagram is also SSD able. Uh, website is ablessd.com and it looks like a three-year-old put it together because that's more or less true so it's going to be upgraded soon but that's where you can find it (laughs) all right thanks again guys appreciate it thank you yeah thank you thank you so much for listening to eat train prosper if you found this episode valuable please subscribe or share us with your friends you can find more from aaron at strakernutritionco.com and more from brian at evolvedtrainingsystems.com. Talk to you guys next time.